Again, we're in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now actually, I'm just cutting the the full text short. This really hangs together with everything to the end of the chapter, but there's no way we could cover that adequately in one service. So we're leaving the rest of chapter 2 for next time. It'll come back, Paul will circle back around and contrast now what they are. Now that they have access in one spirit to the Father, he will say that they are now actually the opposite of They are the opposite now of separated from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. He will say now, actually, they are part of God's new Israel, part of his household. They are his temple, in fact. But we'll get there next time. The big idea of this section is that once far from God and his people... Gentiles are now reconciled in Christ crucified. So though they were once far from God and his people, Gentiles, amazingly, if you know the storyline of the Bible, Gentiles are now reconciled. They're reconciled to God and his people Israel in Christ crucified. As we look at the meaning of the text, and I trust you have that handout from the back table uh, or the PDF, uh, if if you need that. Um, You see, first of all, verses 11 through 12, Paul really hammers home the point that uncircumcised Gentiles were cut off from God and his covenant people. Apart from Christ, those who were not part of the circumcised Old Covenant Jewish nation had no claim on God or his covenants or his people. First of all, the uncircumcision of their flesh comes up. The lack of bodily circumcision once excluded the Gentiles from Israel. Of course, all this will make a lot more sense if if you have the bigger story of the Bible in mind. That's why we, another reason why we go through books like Genesis, which we recently finished, (laughs) You need that storyline to understand this. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jews, the circumcised Jews derisively referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. 
And that wasn't entirely incorrect or inappropriate. Uh, We even, for instance, I think of David when he confronts Goliath, confronting him as this uncircumcised Philistine. (laughs) He was profane and cut off from God, uh, opposing God, in fact. But Paul also is quick to add, you were call, you're called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Notice Paul repeats this idea when he wouldn't need to necessarily. He repeats this wording about the flesh. That you were Gentiles in the flesh. And he talks about the circumcision though as well, which is made in the flesh by hands. Why does he do that? Well, there may be a, like a double meaning here. He may be killing two birds with one stone. When he talks about the flesh, first of all, it's just the fact that um, physically, Gentiles have not undergone circumcision, obviously. That's in the flesh. But also, there might be the flavor from what he had just talked about earlier in this chapter, how in the past we all walked in the, the lusts, the cravings, the desires of our flesh. There may be that flavoring to it also. The flesh referring to the fallen and corrupted character of human nature. But he's also being a little bit ironic, I think. As S.M. Boss says here, there's also some irony here in the repetition of the phrase in the flesh. If the audience members were Gentiles in the flesh, then so also the Jews were only circumcised in the flesh. Neither of which matters for covenant standing after the first advent and work of Christ. That is, right from the beginning, Paul is quick to undercut, undermine Jewish pride. Yeah, you tell him, Paul, they were uncircumcised. But we were circumcised. He says, yeah, in the flesh. Old Covenant Israel, as an ethnic and religious group, was only Israel according to the flesh. In fact, that's how Paul speaks of them in 1 Corinthians 10, 18. He calls them literally Israel according to the flesh. Just because they were Israel in the flesh, that didn't mean that every Jew was God's part of God's true Israel who had circumcised hearts. And that's what always mattered. Romans 2, verses 25 to 29, Paul was hammering the Jews who might have self-righteousness that would boast before God. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That is, circumcision was, was just a symbol for being tied to God in his covenant law. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, that is, by God's Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Flip side of that coin, Philippians 3, 2-3, Paul tells Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, he says to them in Philippi, look out for the dogs, that is, the unclean persons, look out for the evildoers, look out for those 
who mutilate the flesh. People are trying to get them circumcised physically as if that would make them right with God. He says, for we Christians are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Colossians 2.11, he told us in him, in Christ, when he was crucified, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Our old nature was cut away from us in Christ. That's what matters. Having our old nature cutting away, being a new creation in Christ. But I could be getting somewhat ahead of myself here. But it's interesting, Paul even, he not only says the circumcision is made in the flesh, he says made by hands. And that's a word, a Greek word there, done by hand, that would have probably offended the Jews when they heard it. That's a word in their Greek, old, Greek translation of the Old Testament that was often used about the making of idols. <laughs> Figures made by hand. So as Clinton Arnold says, in an unparalleled way, Paul applies the term made by hands to the Jewish practice of circumcision in a way that implies the utter worthlessness of this practice now that the era of Christ has begun. As one who once boasted in the fact that he was an Israelite who had been circumcised on the eighth day of his life, Philippians 3.5, as the Torah commanded, Leviticus 12.3, Paul's radical new outlook on circumcision can only be explained by understanding the irrelevance of this rite from the vantage point of the new covenant and new life in Christ. So again, boil it down, right out of the gate, Paul is indicating that the Jew has no reason to scorn the Gentile Christian who is physically uncircumcised. To boast in the circumcision of the flesh is empty. Because that circumcision merely pointed to Christ who brings true circumcision of the heart. This all sounds really foreign to us because we're so far past this, this era of transition from Old Covenant Israel to the gospel being for all people, right? We're not used to thinking of, well, to get to God, I need to come to the Jerusalem temple. I need to to be circumcised. I need to become part of this covenant nation. (laughs) That's how it was, though. Look at your Bible. Have you read the Old Testament? That's how it was before Christ. And Gentiles, largely, were just in the dark. And God was not unjust. He let them go their own way, serving their false gods. You know anything about your own heritage as a Gentile, assuming you are a Gentile, going back hundreds of years, we weren't nice people. Most of us at some point were idol worshipers, participating in the most degrading ways of life until Christ came. We have missionaries in Indonesia, in a remote part of the world, um, Papua in Indonesia, where Up until about 2006, there was still a tribe practicing cannibalism. And they still struggle with demon worship. That's not unusual. That's just how all the world was, to one degree or another, before Christ came. That's the Gentiles. We need to remember that. We, In fact, a lot of the niceness, you might say, of our culture and how we grew up is just after effects of the gospel in our culture. 
That's not because we're such great people. (laughs) Well, Paul goes on to say, beginning of verse 12, the Gentiles had no claim at that time on Israel's Christ. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king that was promised to Israel. Again, promised to who? Israel. The Christ was promised as the savior of God's chosen people. The Gentiles were enemies of God and his people. They could expect to be trampled by the Messiah when he came. The Messiah would, as the Jews often saw it, put the Gentiles in their place. We had no claim on Christ. He goes on to say we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning we had no claim on Israel's citizenship. God's one holy nation, we weren't part of it. We had no claim on Israel's citizenship. So we had no access to God through that holy covenant nation. Uh, This word for the commonwealth, the citizenship, means Gentiles were not part of the citizen body, the city-state institutions maybe, or the, the citizen rights of ancient Israel. Next, he says, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning the Gentiles had no claim on Israel's covenants. And that's a big deal. The one hope for the world was encapsulated before Christ. That one hope for the world was encapsulated in promises God had made to a specific line of people. Particularly the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he confirmed these promises and he prepared for the fulfillment of these promises with covenants. The covenant with Abraham and his physical offspring with the sign of circumcision. That was given further definition in the covenant through Moses at Sinai and later in the covenant with David and his dynasty. Some have translated this phrase that Paul uses here, the covenants of the promise. The promise of the coming Messiah uh, was bound up with covenants. Not just promises, but solemn oaths. Oath relationships that God set up. But we had nothing to do with that. We were left outside. As Paul says in Romans 9, uh, here he's actually sorrowing for the natural people of Israel, his natural kinsmen. But he talks about what they had under the Old Covenant. Romans 9, 3-5. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Back in our text in verse 12 of Ephesians 2. Lastly, the Gentiles were part of a hopeless world without God. That sums it up. Part of a hopeless world without God. Having no hope and without God. Literally, literally it's one word that's kind of like our word atheist. (laughs) Doesn't mean they didn't believe in in the divine. Means they were cut off from God. Having no hope and without God in the world. Beginning of chapter 2, Paul had already said, we all used to walk according to the age or the course of this world. And that's not a good thing. This world that's hostile to God and is used to doing things its own way. It's a pretty dark picture. 
you add it all up. But listen to what Harry Uprichard says as a proper application of this. He says, according to Scripture, the mass of mankind in the multiracial, multireligious state <laughs> that is all our different cultures and religions put together, the mass of mankind is not on various roads of relative truth leading to God, but is hopeless, purposeless, and godless, trekking as hard and fast as it can down avenues of error away from God. Only Christ resolves this. He is the only way to God. Of course, that's going to be Paul's point here. But don't buy into the very seductive lie that everyone all over the world has some little spark of goodness in them. No, last part of chapter 2 that we covered, we were dead in sins. Made in the image of God, but we've twisted that image and perverted it. Don't buy into the lie that, well, we all have our own religion, our own way to God. We'll all eventually get there. We all have hope in a deity. We just call it different things. That's not Christianity. That's not what God says in his book. Apart from Jesus Christ and specific faith in him, there is no hope for sinners. As we'll see, only the cross can make sinners right with God. That's why. But we get to the good news, verses 13 through 18. That is that the crucified Christ reconciles Gentiles and Jews to God as one new man. Jews had more outward privileges under the old covenant that didn't automatically give them what they really needed, a new heart. Both Jews and Gentiles need the same thing. They need the same atonement the same reconciliation to God that's provided in Jesus Christ crucified. The crucified Christ reconciles Gentiles and Jews to God, but not, not leaving them as Jews and Gentiles separately. He reconciles them to God as one new man. This will be unfolded here in the next verses. Verse 13, first of all, says that Christ's blood atonement has brought Gentiles to God in Christ. It's a blood atonement that could accomplish this, and only a blood atonement. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By his bloody death. In the context of scripture, of course, that's because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now, when he says you've been brought near, that doesn't mean you got, you got close but missed it by that much. <laughs> No, the idea of nearness here, it means the closeness of people who are at peace with God and in fellowship with God. But again, this closeness was impossible without the Messiah shedding his blood in the place of these sinful people. Now we can approach God through Jesus' blood. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. But again, Paul continues to define how this happened. Verses 14 to beginning of verse 15, Christ's bodily death. And there's this emphasis on, on Christ, what happened in Christ's flesh, in his body. Christ's bodily death has abolished the law, which kept Gentiles separate from God and his people. There was a, a covenant law in place that was in the way. And so Christ's bodily death, his death on the cross, abolished the law, which kept Gentiles separate from God and his people. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace. He didn't just give us peace, he gave us himself. He is our peace. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile, one now. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He talks about hostility. There was hostility between God and sinners, particularly Gentile sinners, and there was hostility between those who, at least outwardly, were connected to this God and those who were left outside. Uh, so there's, there's like horizontal hostility as well as vertical between God and man. The dividing wall of hostility, let's talk about that. For one thing, many scholars think that Paul likely has a literal wall in mind. There was a wall in the Jerusalem temple um, that, as we'll see, kept Gentiles out of the inner parts, inner courts of the temple. That may be so. If so, it just illustrates for Paul how, how the Old Covenant law kept God and his Old Covenant people separate from the Gentiles. But it is interesting, in the, the temple at Jerusalem at the time, the, uh, the temple complex covered an area of nearly 40 acres. Um, the perimeter of that area was enclosed by a double colonnade of pillars, stood 37 feet high. And then there was a series of courts, areas inside that. There was the court of the Gentiles. But then the court of the Gentiles was blocked off from the court of women and the court of Israel, leading to the sanctuary itself. It was blocked off by a wall, four and one, hook, four and one half foot high wall, kept the Gentiles out. In fact, there were signs up. Josephus tells us about them. We've discovered some of these signs that said, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And the temple police would, would perhaps kill Gentiles. It was in their jurisdiction to keep the sanctuary holy in that way, if they got too close, if they came within this wall. It's also interesting, Paul is writing to Ephesus here, right? Paul is writing from house arrest in Rome. Because, ultimately because, several years before... He had gotten in trouble in Jerusalem. Why? He'd been accused of bringing a Greek, an Ephesian named Trophimus, into the temple. <laughs> it wasn't true. But he'd been accused of that. That's why he was in this mess in the first place, in his imprisonment. Perhaps Paul does have this wall in mind. Many think he does. 
But again, if he does, it's an illustration to him of not a literal wall, but the covenant law which God had given Israel that kept Gentiles out. If he does have the temple in Jerusalem in mind, it would fit with where he's going at the end of the chapter, that Jews and Gentiles in Christ are now God's sanctuary, his temple, and there's no distinction. But Paul goes on here to explain what he means by Christ breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, how does he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now hang with me here. This is, this is the deep part of the text where Paul is really packing a lot in. We need to be careful here, and, and as, as Reformed people in our theology, we are, we are very careful to say there is a sense in which God will not abolish his own moral law. That's correct. So Paul isn't here talking about, when he says Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he's not talking about the moral law of God, which is the unchanging reflection of God's character that he puts in a sense on our consciences. God's moral law cannot be abolished without abolishing God's own righteousness. In fact, the new covenant in Christ teaches us to love the commandments of God, the law of God in this sense. But what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's speaking of the law which God gave Old Covenant Israel through Moses, the entire package, in a sense, as Old Covenant law, particularly as expressed in its ceremonial and civil aspects. But this law was satisfied and abolished, in this sense, at the cross. Remember that Jesus, the circumcised son of Abraham, kept the works of the Old Covenant perfectly, and in his death, he satisfied its every penalty against lawbreakers. That's how he abolished it. Those in Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 7, verse 4, have died to the law as any sort of covenantal demand or condition. <laughs> Let me read, first of all, from a Presbyterian named S.M. Baugh, then I'll read from Richard Barcelos on this text. Uh, S.M. Baugh said, The Mosaic Law... The law of Moses served as the constitution of Israel's theocracy and its citizenship, which Paul has just been talking about, of course. But the theocracy has expired, and the theocratic constitution has been supplanted by the new covenant. Richard Barcellus writes, and it's in the context where he's talking about this very text, he says, The whole law of Moses, as it functioned under the old covenant, has been abolished, including the Ten Commandments. Now, now, he's going to say the Ten Commandments still apply in a different way. But he says, not one jot or tittle of the law of Moses functions as Old Covenant law anymore. And to act as if it does constitutes redemptive historical retreat and neo-Judaizing. However, to acknowledge that the law of Moses no longer functions as Old Covenant law is not to accept that it no longer functions. It simply no longer functions as Old Covenant law. This can be seen by the fact that the New Testament teaches both the abrogation of the law of the Old Covenant and its abiding moral validity under the New Covenant. This would be a whole topic all its own. That's why we've done some deep studies like our book on covenant theology not long ago. The point is, 
well, first of all, let me also say, later in Ephesians, Paul will quote the Ten Commandments as authoritative. It's authoritative revelation of God's moral commands. And under the New Covenant, we believers will gladly obey it as an expression of God's grace in Christ. But in Ephesians 2, again, Paul is saying that the law of Moses as a covenant, which demanded ceremonies like circumcision, food laws, feast days, sacrifices, that law which marked Jews as God's national people and Gentiles as excluded. You could say the law as the fuller expression of the covenant of circumcision. That's been abolished at the cross. The package has been abolished. Then we go to the rest of verse 15 and verse 16, where we see that Christ's bodily death has created a new body of humanity reconciled to God. That, all this is done in order that, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here Paul talks about a new creation again. He talked about it earlier in the chapter. He brings it up again. This was done so Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of Jew and Gentile and so make peace. And so the church, the New Testament church is not created by making all the Gentiles become Jews. Right? That is what Paul and all the apostles had to fight in the first century. Some Jewish Christians wanted to make all the Gentiles Jews before they could be full Christians. Starting with circumcision. And they said, no, that's a denial of the gospel. At the cross, Christ took all that out of the way. And now he's made both Jew and Gentile into a new thing. The Gentiles don't all become Jews. The Jews don't all become Gentiles. It's something, it's a third category, something new. Verse 17, Christ's gospel voice now announces peace to Gentile and Jew alike. Again, lest you get lost in the details, the big point here is what happened at the cross? At the cross, Jesus removed everything that would that kept Gentiles far off from God, and that kept Gentiles and Jews separate, and that kept Jews unreconciled to God as well. It's all taken care of at the cross, but then Jesus did something else. It didn't stop at the cross. Jesus came and preached the gospel to you. That's what he says next. Jesus sought you out. And as his word was preached, he announced Gospel peace to all of you, whether you were a Jew, near to God in that sense outwardly, or whether you were a Gentile, far off. His gospel voice announces peace to Gentile and Jew alike. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This word for preaching is not is not just the word for preaching like K. Russo. It's the word for Proclaiming, announcing good news, announcing the gospel. Galizzo. He preached the gospel of peace, you almost could say. 
And here, Paul is drawing on the wording of Isaiah. And let me quickly summarize it for you. Prophet Isaiah, by the way, gets a lot of attention in the New Testament because he he so clearly, as clearly as anywhere in the Old Testament, talked about how Jew and Gentile would be alike drawn to the Messiah. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Christmas time, we think of these verses a lot, don't we? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the promised Messiah, seated at God's right hand as David's heir, as Jesus now is in heaven. He's the prince of peace and the increase of his government is the increase of peace. Go to Isaiah 56, and it lets us know that part of this coming peace will include not just, not just the Jew who always could draw near in the temple, for instance. It includes the foreigner and the unclean person, the eunuch. Isaiah 56, 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord... To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That is, I'll accept their worship. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The last piece of the puzzle is Isaiah 57, where it says, However, only the contrite of heart can draw nigh to God. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And it's in that context, then, where he said, I'm going to bring peace even to the the Gentile and the eunuch. I will not separate them from my people. I will give peace to everyone who is of a contrite heart. Then Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. What Paul is quoting here. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So Paul is drawing on all this. That people, whoever they are, whether they are far off Gentiles, whoever they are, they can have the peace of the Messiah through a contrite and broken heart clinging to him. 
Now, back in our text, though, it says that Jesus himself came and preached peace. The idea is that when the gospel is preached, Jesus Christ is preaching it. Now, no, I'm not saying that I and other preachers are like popish vicars of Christ. <laughs> That's or infallible or anything like that. That's not the point. But the point is, as Jesus sends forth his preachers by his Holy Spirit, with his word proclaimed, he's coming and preaching to people and saying, here's my peace. Receive it. I give you peace with God through what I did on the cross. And he's saying that to you today, gathered here. That's why we are here. One big reason is that Jesus Christ has sent his word out to the nations, his gospel of peace. You can have peace with God, but you can't have it any other way than through Jesus Christ. You have in your notes Romans 10. I'll skip that for sake of time, but turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Notice how Jesus himself called his sheep by name and they hear his voice and that's how they follow him. John 10 verse, verses 2 through 4, first of all, Jesus says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Down in verse 14 of that same chapter. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is, they are not Jews, they are Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Lastly, in verse 18 of Ephesians 2, what is this peace? This peace is open access in one Christ and one spirit to the Father. Open access. In one Christ and one spirit to the Father. Verse 18. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul often contrasts the flesh, meaning the resources of fallen human nature, with the spirit, the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit. Remember how he began this section in verse 11. Talking about things as they are in the flesh. <laughs> but our approach to the Father is not in the flesh. Whether uncircumcised or circumcised. Our approach is in the Holy Spirit. He says here. In one spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who unites us through faith. To what Christ accomplished in his flesh. In his body on the cross. Now through him. Through Christ. The crucified Christ. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
Doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile. As Paul says elsewhere, doesn't matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, cultured or uncultured, slave or free, male or female. Doesn't matter who we are. We all get to God the same way, by one spirit. And through the cross of Jesus Christ to the Father. We all have equal standing because we all have equal access to God. And in this way, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who bring us to himself, the triune God gets all the glory for this. And it's not some of us saying, well, yeah, I was already pretty close to God. And I still have better access to him than you schmoes over here. We all get to God the same way, with equal access. And the and again, it pains me to just stop here, in a sense, um, because Paul is now going to unfold all that that means gloriously for the church, for those who believe in Christ. But we'll get there next week. But the most important thing already is the way was blocked, the way was shut. You want to look at it in terms of Genesis. The cherubim with the flaming sword were standing in our way. We couldn't get to God. We didn't want to get to God. We hated him. As Paul talked about at the beginning of this chapter. But now the way is open and we draw near. So the big idea, again, once far from God and his people, Gentiles are now reconciled in Christ crucified. Now, I will mention three applications of this text while not while being careful not to steal thunder from next time as Paul himself develops this. But first of all, there is something for you if you're here and you're not sure that you understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe in Jesus. All of us naturally are sinners. Apart from Christ, we need a time when we come to Christ for ourselves in faith and throw ourselves on him and trust our souls to him by faith alone, not trusting in anything good about us to make him like us. Just trusting in what Jesus did in the place of sinners. Jesus paid the penalty that our sins deserve. He paid that penalty on the cross and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life that we don't deserve. Life with God. In fellowship with God. But the first point of application is sinner, trust Christ as your only claim upon God. Trust Christ as your only claim upon God. Remember what all that we said about how futile it is to trust in something about us, about our flesh, about our natural condition. I think that'll give us points with God. Again, think of the Jew whom God himself made a covenant with in the Old Testament. Think of that covenant of circumcision. And then think of your outward marks of a good family or a good church. Those won't commend you to God. I grew up in a a good family that believed in God. That's good. That doesn't mean anything for whether you are right with God. I'm part of a good church. Maybe you're here and you're a member of this church. And you're trusting in 
your outward connection to a good church. That doesn't make you right with God. The works of the law will not commend you to God either. Scripture is clear on that. Obeying God's commands, that is. Only union with Jesus Christ by faith in him will commend you to God. That's why Paul said in Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though, Paul says, he thinks of his own story, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that, from God that depends on faith. Don't come to God with your credentials. But don't come to God as if, God, I know you need to give me grace, but first of all, I have this coupon code. It'll take, take some off, so I need less grace from you. You'll get a good deal with me, God. Don't come to him that way. Come only because of how good a Savior Jesus is. Second application, and this is for Christians. Christian, cherish the cross as your only peace with God. Cherish the cross as your only peace with God. We're tempted to go back to a fleshly mindset. Once we do believe in Jesus, genuinely, we still are tempted to think fleshly sometimes and think that I have peace with God because I'm doing good enough in my Christian life. I have peace with God because, wow, I must have impressed him today at church. I have peace with God because... I do so much for him and his people. No. Remember the gospel. And don't despise the cross that way. Jesus hung up to die in your place is your only peace with God. God loved you from before the foundation of the world and he sent his son onto that cross in your place so that you would have peace with him. And Jesus went willingly. No one took his life from him. He said he laid it down willingly for the sheep. And then he called us by name. Once he had died in our place and risen in our place, he called us by name. But your peace cost the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. Peace with God does not come cheap. Because we're a fallen race. Cherish the shed blood that was a priceless atonement that quenched the hellfire of God's wrath against you. And don't boast in anything except the cross 
where Jesus took away everything hostile to you. Boast in the cross, not in yourself. So cherish the cross as your only peace with God. And third, Christian, cherish the church as Christ's unified body. Cherish the church as Christ's unified body. If God united circumcised Jew and uncircumcised Gentile in the body of Christ, if he did all that, and circumcision was was something that God himself put in place in the first place, but if God did so much even in the cross, to unite even Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. Let's not allow lesser things to undermine the unity of that body. And we could all do that. This is why, again, giving a preview of things to come in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says, in light of all he's said, including our text today, he says... I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember, we all have access in one Spirit to the Father. So maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So verse 15 of that chapter, he's going to say, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Or as Paul says in Romans 15, where the issue is, again, Jew and Gentile in the church. Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What tempts you not to welcome each other as God has welcomed you? I trust no one here looks down their nose at someone else because, well, they're uncircumcised. Seems like a pretty moot point for us at this point in history, church history. There could be lesser things, though, right? I grew up in a Christian family. I'm... Literally could say this about myself. One side of my family, I have generations of people who claim to believe the gospel and preached it. I could take great pride in that, stupidly, and say, some of you, you're just a first-generation Christian. What do you know? But we can be tempted to think that way. Or, yeah, they were believers before they joined our church, but they came from that kind of a church. They, they, they need to just sit in the, we don't have pews, sit in the back pew for a while, see how it's done. 
they're, they're a lesser class. What might, you, what might cause you to not really welcome each other as God has welcomed you on the basis of faith in Christ alone? Trust it's not really stupid stuff like, well, they, they like the wrong sports team or they're from the wrong area of the country or they're from, not even from this country or really dumb stuff like that. Welcome each other as God has welcomed you in Christ. No conditions. We all come to God in one spirit, in one crucified Savior. That should be enough. And none of the credit goes to us that we came to God. So let's not act that way as we interact with each other. It's one more way to remember the gospel and put it to practical use. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for welcoming us in Christ. We had no claim on you. Our flesh protests at that. We want to say, oh, God owed me something. But we confess, Father, you did not owe us a thing outside of Christ. But thank you that you so loved this wicked world that you sent your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Because wonderfully for us, Lord Jesus, you came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through you. So Lord, may those here who have not yet believed, believe today. May it be settled for them. May they go from darkness to light and rejoice in your marvelous light. Help us who are truly Christians by faith to live like it consistently, more consistently every day. And fill us with joy and peace in believing what you have told us and reminded us of today in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.